You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, although most people use the game of rock, paper, scissors to decide who has to take out the trash, there is a subculture of society that actually takes the game pretty seriously. In the 1990s, CD clubs promised subscribers deals on music albums that could only be explained as too good to be true. So were they? What if you could simulate a pandemic for science? Well, fortunately for researchers, the video game engineers behind World of Warcraft did exactly that, even though they didn't mean to. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So, Dave, when we're talking about the game of rock, paper, scissors, I'm going to take a guess and you tell me if I'm right. I'm guessing that when you were a kid and people challenged you to games of rock, paper, scissors, it would go like this. You would go rock, paper, scissors, shoot, and then you'd stick out a finger and you'd go dynamite and then you'd say, I win. Yes. You know me so well. I was getting ready to say dynamite, but I didn't want to interrupt you because I knew that's where you were headed. Well, Dave, I don't know how much you know about organized rock, paper, scissors, but the sport is actually a lot more organized than I realized. The first organization to organize the game of rock, paper, scissors into a competitive format was the World Rock, Paper, Scissors Society, which the Atlantic described as, quote, a unique viral experiment. The organization exploded over the course of 10 years, from 1995 to 2005, and at its peak, it was holding world championships with referees, had corporate sponsorships from Microsoft and Yahoo, and a $10,000 pot for the winner. In 2007, ESPN and Fox Sports even televised the championships. And then came the now-defunct World Rock, Paper, Scissors Society, which disappeared in 2012. But today, the game is organized primarily by the World Rock, Paper, Scissors Association, which hosts the national and world-level competitions. According to their website, the game is one that, quote, anyone can win, some can just win more often. And Dave, winning more often on some level requires some study of human behavior and statistics. Competitive players study the opponent's hands looking for clues or study their past choices to identify patterns, for example. Subconsciously, we do oftentimes create patterns that we aren't even aware of, and teaching your brain to truly act randomly, well, it really is training on some level. Researchers who have studied subconscious patterns reveal that we tend not only to favor certain choices unconsciously, but we also tend to more often than not choose the options in rock, paper, scissors that we have won with in the past. When we lose, we tend to favor sort of a clockwise direction of the choices. The World Rock, Paper, Scissors Association reports that rock is played about 35.4% of the time per round, paper is played about 35%, and scissors is played about 29.6%. Now, the Michael Jordan of this sport, Dave, is a man named Ken Watson, a former world champion who describes his own approach to the game as being psychological. 
understanding your opponent, their body language, their predictability, but then also checking your own. That's what makes a good player, according to Watson. And oftentimes, Dave, you even see experienced players closing their eyes to try to avoid any influence from another player as not to psych themselves out. So where did this game come from? Well, it actually goes back way farther than you think. According to an article for The Atlantic written by Katherine Schwab, the first reference that we know of to a finger-flashing game similar to Rock, Paper, Scissors is actually painted on a tomb site in Middle Egypt and is dated to around 4,000 years ago. Centuries later, a scroll from Japan references one too. Versions of a three-way choice game in which every choice has a weakness and a strength actually exist all over the world in different forms. In Japan, it's called Jankipon and can feature a variation of a tiger, a village chief, and the village chief's mother who beats the village chief. In Indonesia, the game is Earwig, Man, Elephant. And if you're curious, Dave, the Earwig beats the elephant by crawling up its trunk and eating its brain. So why does this game exist so far and wide? Why is this game cross-cultural and therefore sort of human nature on some level? I think, Dave, it's for a few reasons. One, it's very accessible and it's really easy to play. It requires no training or knowledge, just a decision. There is a small yet important aspect of strategy here as well, since the best move is to act completely randomly. But humans are naturally very terrible at behaving randomly. It's within that that we can use this game from a battle for bragging rights or even just a quick game to decide who has to do the chores. It's nostalgic on some level, too, since we play it typically when we're young. Those that participate in the bigger structure of an organized version of this, they're pretty self-aware on some level, too, that it's kind of a joke and a parody, in a way, of organized sports in general. There are world championships for marbles and tetherball and air guitar, for example, too, that kind of have the same DNA. But the subculture is very alive, and it takes itself seriously on another level as well. So next time you play Rock, Paper, Scissors, Dave, let me give you this advice now. You need to, on some subconscious level, hide your choice from even yourself to win more often than lose. You ready? Yeah. Oh, you want to play? All right. It's on shoot. Don't cheat and don't do the dynamite thing. All right, so we go. We go. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Yes. Here we go. All right. Rock, Rock, paper, paper, scissors, scissors, shoot. Shoot. All double paper. Okay, Okay. here we go. All right. Rock, Rock, paper, paper, scissors, dynamite, baby. (laughs) Blow him up. I hate you so much. Blow him up. Jay, a few years ago... You and I made a bet with each other, with the loser being forced to go to a movie that neither of us wanted to see. The remake of the Stephen King horror classic, It. Do you recall this? Yeah. I mean, I remember you losing the bet, uh, but I don't remember what the original bet was even for. I don't either. But but uh, I must reiterate, okay, because this is what's important. You and I both hate horror movies, like really, really hate horror movies. Right. But being the man of my word that I am, I reluctantly went to it. But did you look up all the jump scares online before the movie? Maybe. <laughs> Don't lie but to our audience. I, I, I think we I think we've talked about this on on the show before. There's a, a website, and I can't remember what it's called. It's like when can I pee or something like that. And it tells you these different moments in the movie. And in horror movies, it gives away where the jump scares are. So on this specific movie, I did look up the scariest scene and pretended to go to the bathroom and I stood in that little hallway. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like where you walk into the movies. So I was back there like peeking around the corner watching. Um, So yes, I did do that. 
while it ended up honestly not being that bad. That's really not what's important about that day for our show today. Now, what's important is what happened before the movie. The movie was at the mall, and my wife, who did not attend the movie with me, went with me a little early so she could go to Books A Million. Now, if you've ever checked out at a Books A Million, you'll know that they offer you a deal while you are paying. Because of your purchases, you have the option of picking out a few magazine subscriptions that will be free for you for a limited time. Now, Jay, as I'm sure our listeners know, this is basically a scam. The magazines hope you'll sign up for the first, whatever, free six months, forget to cancel, and be on the hook for a full-blown subscription. Jay, are you familiar with this tactic? Yeah, I mean, you still, you know, like, talk about it, the, this, this thing, like, <laughs> happening with your wife. Well, to make what's already a long story as short as possible, Jay, yes, you're right. My wife signed up for some magazines, and I was so stressed from being forced to go to this movie that I did not want to see because of you. <laughs> that we got into a full-blown, legit fight in the middle of the mall. So thank you for damaging my (laughs) Hey, you made the bet. Well, Jay, the aforementioned magazine model is close cousins to a different kind of subscription model that became popular in the 1990s. But this one was way more scammy. Jay, if you remember anything about the 1990s, I'm sure you recall direct mail subscription offers being sent to your household from music CD clubs. Okay, the main two were Columbia House and BMG Music Service. These music companies offered up deals on CDs that were truly nearly impossible to believe. BMG's offer ebbed and flowed a bit through the life of the company, but it made its name through this specific deal. Buy one CD, one album at the listed price and get 12 for free. The Columbia House, on the other hand, offered a similar too-good-to-be-true deal. Buy eight CDs for a penny. Jay, these deals were, of course, too-good-to-be-true because they really were too-good-to-be-true. Both companies operated in the world of tricky contracts, semantics, and paragraphs full of contract information that were hidden in little teeny parentheses. The trick to these companies was as simple as it was complicated. You'd enter into a subscription relationship, basically for free. Once a certain time passed, usually a month or more, long enough for you to have forgotten that you ever did it, the full contract clauses would kick in and kick in hard. You'd be charged full price for all of the free... CDs that you kept and didn't mail back. A collection agency would be assigned to your specific case, and often a potential prosecutable mail fraud situation would be attached to you. Jay, these companies survived and thrived on something called negative option billing, meaning basically that by registering for this free service that is only free for a short time, you are agreeing to continue as a paying subscriber until you cancel through a very complicated process. And the company sees the non-cancellation as you saying, yes, continue to charge me, please, for these overpriced CDs. <laughs> and CD clubs, as they are referred to, didn't just get new customers by being shady. They were shady in every facet of existence. The CDs, get this, were often burned, replicated copies of the actual album. Employees were trained to work tirelessly in opposition of letting people cancel. 
Much of the cancellation requirements relied on the Postal Service returning your free product, so CD clubs concentrated their marketing efforts in small communities that didn't have post offices. Needless to say, employees were often treated very poorly. Well, by 2003, it had all started to unravel. In a class action lawsuit, a U.S. district judge ruled that CD clubs had been running a price-fixing conspiracy. Settlements and lengthy lawsuits followed, effectively destroying the business. Now, JCD clubs weren't the only ones running cons. Some members had figured out a way to con them back. Spin Magazine reports that one super user, Joseph Parvin, had received nearly 27,000 albums over a five-year period by using 2,417 fake accounts attached to 16 different mailing addresses. By the time it was over, it was said that Parvin had conned the companies out of nearly half a million dollars in product. Almost a Robin Hood figure now, Jay, he would eventually settle pleading guilty to a reduced charge of <laughs> one count of mail fraud. I mean, this is just, uh, that guy's my hero. Like, it's just a extraordinary level of petty. Like, you know he just got like one bill and he was like, oh no, I'm taking this whole thing down. I remember I'd get those in the mail. and I was young, and so I'd circle, it just seemed so awesome. I couldn't understand why my parents wouldn't let me do it. And so I'd circle the albums that I wanted and hand it to my dad. Like, hey, if you get a chance. And then he'd just kind of like, oh yeah, and then just throw it away. <laughs> So Dave, on a previous episode of this podcast, I did talk about how I had about a two or three month stint where I was like really into World of Warcraft. Uh, You were popular with the girls (laughs) back then. Yeah, uh, something like that. Um, but you've also had some, I was. <laughs> you've also had some experiences <laughs> with uh, people in your life in World of Warcraft, right? Yes, I have. So uh, I dated somebody at, at a certain point uh, whose dad was really into computer games, especially World of Warcraft. And World of Warcraft, as we have talked about, requires a lot of time from you. You meet up with other real people and raid. I mean, you, you build these like missions together, so you have to actually show up. And he started skipping family functions to go to these raids. And it got so bad, it escalated to the 4th of July one year. It's, it's late, we've already done the grilling, everyone's hanging out, and the fireworks are getting ready to start. And he starts packing up the car. And his wife goes, what are you doing? And he said, well, I got a raid. I got to get home. And she said, well, the fireworks are about to start. And he said one of my favorite things I've ever heard. If I want to watch fireworks, you ever heard of YouTube? Then he gets in his car and drives off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a deep level of commitment uh, to the to the craft. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've always been interested in World of Warcraft. If you don't know what it is, it's this big online game where people play uh, together uh, and you have to be logged on in real time, live, right? So, Dave, in mid-2005 on this game, players logged in to find this online world totally under siege from a virtual epidemic, one that had spread through the game, leaving a trail of tens of thousands of dead characters. And while this plague wasn't intentional, it has really intrigued disease experts who study it as a template for the spread of a real epidemic. It is known to those who play the game infamously as the corrupted blood incident. And the root of it seems to be an update that hit the game on September 13th in 2005. And in this update, the game introduced a new boss within a dungeon named Hakar the Soul Flayer. 
Now, when fighting Hakkar, the trick was to keep your distance. If a player got too close to him, they would be afflicted with what was called corrupted blood, which caused damage to the character every two seconds for about 10 total seconds. Now, the damage here, Dave, it's important to understand two things about it. One is that it was pretty significant damage, as in a lower level character would not survive corrupted blood. But second, corrupted blood was also infectious to any other player who got in the vicinity of the infected player. Buried under the surface, though, was a problem. Pets of players could also be afflicted. And if a player dismissed their pet while it was infected and then decided to recall it in a new place, such as in a populated city, the pet would carry the disease. So pretty soon, cities all over World of Warcraft servers began to fall to the corrupted blood with hundreds of lower-level players just outright being killed and not knowing why. Now, while you'd think that this would just run its course, it didn't, specifically because non-player-controlled characters like guards and shop owners and others could also contract (laughs) corrupted blood. And since they can't die, they became infinite spreaders of the disease. Chaos spread as players died only to be respawned and then die again. And panic spread as players tried to make sense of the plague, trying to decipher if it was some sort of event pre-planned within the game. Blizzard, the company who owns World of Warcraft, was just as baffled as the players, and it took days before they finally traced the disease back to the original source. Players, in the meantime, began setting up quarantined areas to attempt to contain the spread of corrupted blood, and higher-level players would venture into the cities to look for clues as to what was happening. Players who had the ability to heal worked around the clock to keep the infected from dying, while others purposefully worked to spread the disease and break quarantines because, you know, some men just like to watch the world burn. And while the plague was eventually removed, it took about a month before the issue was resolved. And since the corrupted blood incident, researchers have been fascinated by it. The event serves in a way like a real-world model for how people respond and react in real time to the spread of a pandemic or a bioterrorist attack. Remember that this was 15 years before the spread of COVID-19. One of the key conclusions that researchers made, for example, was how difficult it was to convince players that the epidemic was real. Blizzard attempted to warn players to stay away from urban areas multiple times only to be shrugged off, which, at least in 2005, didn't seem right. Epidemiologist Nina Pfefferman in 2008 notes how similar the event was to a real-world epidemic, saying this, quote, It originated in a remote, uninhabited region and was carried by travelers to urban centers. Hosts were both human and animal, such as with the avian flu. It was spread by close spatial contact, and there were asymptomatic individuals, the invulnerable non-player characters. In 2008, Charles Blair of the Center for Terrorism and Intelligence Studies explained to Wired Magazine that the players who intentionally spread the disease were studied to analyze how terrorist cells form and operate when engaging in bioterrorism. Dr. Sherry Turkle of MIT explained why the event so closely mirrored real life in this way, saying, It's not that it's not part of your real life just because it's happening on the screen. It becomes integrated into really what you do every day. And so where you have lost that part of your life that was involved in the habits and the rituals of the daily life, it is very traumatic. It is play, but it's very serious play. 
And Dave, although we have a lot more data that we've gathered regarding real-time reactions to a pandemic since 2005, obviously, you got to think that maybe our response as a world to COVID would have been better if we had collectively participated in the corrupted blood incident. Instead, a lot of us acted like those non-playable characters. That's so good to me. So, like, if you've never played a video game or you're not really into the video games, non-playable characters are the characters that are just in the game to add to the story. Like, you can walk up to them and have a conversation. Like, they're just standing by a house, and maybe they keep saying the same thing over and over. Like, well, the wind's blowing awfully strong because they're holding some kind of secret, potentially, so you have to go ask them something. So to think that those people were spreading the virus while they're repeating the hogwash that they say over and over (laughs) is... So funny. Picture this, because in World of Warcraft, when a player dies, their skeleton actually sits there for a while. So picture this. You come into the city, there's thousands of skeletons laying everywhere, and there's the one shop owner just being like, want to come and buy something from me? Like some kind of like standard line, and he's giving you the disease that's going to kill you, too. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. Is there anything more boring than watching fireworks on the computer? Like, actually watching fireworks on YouTube has got to be the worst thing of all time. But people do it. Like, this video, yeah. this, this was a month ago, 300,000 views. Yeah, I 300,000 views on, and here's these, you know, these ones people, from, like, three years ago. They have three million. Those people always post things uh, on Facebook every year that's like, uh, just a reminder, no one's going to watch the videos of fireworks that you take on your phone. It's like, well, joke's on you. Yeah, joke's three on Three million them, people did. This guy right here, Yashi135. On YouTube, 11 million views on his fireworks. <laughs> That's a lot. And it's only two minutes. He has a two-minute video of fireworks. 11 million views. Hey, don't hate the player. Hate the game. It's a sick world we live in. Sick. <laughs> <laughs>